Well, you know, it seems like it's almost nightly that we hear business owners lamenting the fact that they can't find people willing to work. Can't find people who are honest when they're at work, who will show up on time, do what they're paid to do, who won't steal from them. You know, every year uh, it seems like there's a report that comes out where billions of dollars are passed on to customers because of employee theft. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the answer is pretty simple. You know, we live in a fallen world where the scripture tells us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The first two chapters of Colossians deal with who we are in Christ. Now, chapter 3 gives us the application of that. What does that look like? What does it mean to be in Christ when you are in the church? Or when you are within a family, husband, wives, children? And what does it look like at the marketplace? Let me ask you this before we start. How many New Testament books do you think are written to uh, what we would call slaves, or in this text it calls it uh, bond servants? How many books are written to those individuals? Galatians, Ephesians, Titus, Timothy, Philemon, and Colossians. Why? Why are there so many books written to them? There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. About half the empire was made up of people from conquered nations. Over the years, some have condemned Paul and accused the Bible of supporting slavery. Because they say, well, it doesn't condemn slavery. The Bible doesn't condemn it. Paul doesn't condemn it. He's acquiescing to his culture. And so I think it's worth noting that we need to address that matter. That that slavery in the first century was not like we think of slavery today. This word douloi, translated slave or bondservant, wasn't a matter of, of forced servitude. It was an economic issue within the countries and empires of that day. People who were part of vassal nations who were conquered by the Romans uh, in that day, were servants of the Roman Empire. Whether they were fishermen or accountants or um, whatever it was they did, tent makers, didn't matter. They served under the laws, both domestic laws and civil regulations of that ruling nation. And many of the domestic regulations that were put into place in that day were to help those who were in need. You know, some in the Old Testament actually sold themselves as what you'd call slaves or bond servants for economic purposes. It was a compassionate means for providing care and income for their family. You know, the kind of, of slave hunting kind of slave trading, kind of slave purchasing that we think of that that took place in the 16th century to the 19th century has always been condemned in Scripture. So where has it been condemned? Well, look back in Exodus 21, verse 16. It identifies those who engage in capturing people and forcing them into labor are deserving of death. The Bible prescribes capital punishment for that. 
So this word deloy, slaves or bond servants, it's not addressing slavery like what takes place today. Do you know we still have slavery today? We still have it. Did you realize there are 27 million victims of forced labor or sex trade today? There's another 22 million victims of forced marriages, forced marriages. Now the highest percentage of that kind of slavery as we would call it today, it takes place in Arab states. The kind of activity of kidnapping, of forcing women and children into slavery, worthy of death penalty, was under Old Testament law. That's how the Old Testament saw it. That's how the Lord prescribed punishment for those who did that kind of behavior. So if anyone tells you the Bible supports slavery, you tell them that's absolutely not true. It's those who reject the Bible who support slavery. Many of the bond servants being addressed in the scripture had become Christians. And so that's the whole point of these letters. How does a transformed life in Christ impact members of vassal nations in the first century? That's the context. I mean, those who rail and rail against Paul for, for writing, Deloy, servants, obey. That's the same word, by the way, that he used with tetekna, children. Hupo, under, under their authority. Kuo, listen. Exact same word. Listen to them in everything, those who are your earthly masters. You see, those who accuse Paul in the Bible of reinforcing a system exploiting people literally have to take the scripture out of context out of context to make this false accusation that Paul is acquiescing to the culture, cultural trends of his day. You got to keep in mind, the scripture is theonoustos. God breathed. God breathed for his people. The gospel, it's a letter to the church, to the body of Christ as to how we now live to the glory of God in every realm, whether it's when we're in church, whether we're at home, or whether we're working. Paul is not addressing the kidnapping and forced labor of anyone. He's addressing Christians within the empire where they live. He's simply saying, regardless of what your position in life is, Christ is your Lord. That's his point. You know, one of the reasons that Mark Twain gave for being an atheist was because he heard southern pulpits defending slavery using text like this. A terrible misuse and abuse of scripture. Because when you take the scripture in context, the Bible never endorses the capture of people for forced labor. And Paul didn't agree with slavery. He didn't promote slavery, nor did he ever approve of the way slaves were being treated. In the Old Testament, the Lord didn't approve of poverty. But does he give laws that address poverty? Well, of course. Of course he did. Why? Because it's inevitable. Due to the sins of men, poverty is going to be a reality. So he's saying, this is how you deal with it. What's well, the same thing here? 
So some will say, well, now, wait a minute, whoa, 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 what about Onesimus? Huh? Wasn't Onesimus a fugitive slave of Philemon? And Philemon, wasn't he the guy where the church there at Colossae, isn't that where they were meeting for worship? Was in his home, right? What about Onesimus? Well, it's true. Onesimus did work for Philemon. You know what he did? He robbed him. He embezzled from him. And then he took off for Rome. He runs into Paul. He becomes a Christian. You know what Paul says? What's Paul saying? I'm sending Onesimus back to you, Philemon. I'm sending him back. Not just as your servant. I'm sending him back as something far better. I'm sending him back as your brother in Christ. You'll be able to trust him now. He is living his life for Christ. He's going to be a completely different servant than what you knew before. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon about this. He writes it at the same time he's writing this letter to, to give to Philemon to read to the church. He sends Philemon a letter about Onesimus. And he's not endorsing slavery. He's merely addressing how Onesimus is to live as a Christian servant of his earthly master, Philemon. And how Philemon is to treat this employee of his as his employer. How are we as Christians to, to serve our earthly bosses? You know, when scripture is correctly handled, it leads to major social reform. And I'll give you a real quick example of that. If you go back um, into the uh, time when George Whitfield was preaching the gospel, when guys like John Wesley was preaching the gospel, you know what they saw? They saw lives being transformed by the gospel. And as they lived out their life for Christ, you know what it led to? It led to the denouncement of slavery in their day. The denouncement of it. Changed lives always set into motion social reform. Uh, William Wilberforce, his proclamation of the gospel there in England brought an end to slavery in 1834, setting the stage for the proclamation of the Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Lincoln in this country 30 years later in 1863. Elizabeth Fry, Theodore Fleitner. I mean, these are individuals who, because of the gospel, they begin prison reforms. They build hospitals. They build orphanages. Why? Because of the transformation the gospel had made. Fleitner is the one who trained Florence Nightingale, the mother of modern nursing. You know, one theologian, I think it was A.T. Robertson, when he was talking about our vertical relationship with the Lord always impacts our horizontal relationship with our fellow man, he said it doesn't matter whether it's at church, at home, at work, in the workplace, or within the culture. Changed lives change cultures. So Paul's not talking about the social evil of slavery. 
He's talking about how Christians impact the fallen world in which they live. This is how you're to regard one another. Obey, hupo, under, kuo, listen. In everything, not just the things that you want to do, not just things that you think you ought to do. He's saying even those things that you don't want to do, if it's part of your job, you do it. He's not talking about doing things that go against who you are in Christ. He would never do that. That's nowhere found in Scripture. He's saying obey in everything, even the things you don't necessarily enjoy doing with your job. You do it well. Obey your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, only when they are watching you, as though you are a people pleaser, but you do it with sincerity of heart. Why? Fearing the Lord. Why? The Lord's watching how you work. You know, one guy was talking about one of the worst employees he ever had were were two guys uh, in seminary. He said they were the worst employees he ever hired. They were always standing around talking about scripture, always standing around talking about doctrine, always standing around talking about what you ought to believe. He said, you know, one would go to the bathroom for 45 minutes and emerged, you know, having read three chapters in John while he was in the John. The problem is they didn't do their work. They weren't doing what they were being paid to do. How does that honor the Lord? It doesn't. It doesn't. He said, we're to work with sincerity of heart. Haplates. You know what that means? That's a word for singleness. So what do you mean singleness? As opposed to duplicity. (laughs) You know, when you come to church and you read your Bible and you hold to great doctrinal truths, And then you go out into the real world and you lie, you curse, you steal, you you don't do the work that you're being paid to do, and then you claim that you are a Christian, that's duplicity. He's saying that's what you don't do. You must be sincere with sincerity of heart. That means a singleness of mind. You you don't do what you're supposed to do only when the boss is watching. But when he's not watching, what are you doing? What are you doing? One word for singleness of mind, um, our word at least, comes from uh, the the etymology of it, comes from integer. You know what we get from the word integer? integrity. It means without duplicity. In other words, we don't speak to our boss one way when he's standing there and then talk about him another way when we're speaking with others around the water cooler. Uh, We don't don't, um, uh, talk about how great an employee we are and then we do shoddy work. Integrity means that in Christ, we're the same person, whether we're at work, at home, in the church, or in the culture. You know, I was asked one time to open the Senate with prayer. Uh, before I, I went in, the doorman reminded me that, you know, you do not pray in the name of Jesus. You do not do that. You'll cause trouble. I said, well, then how do you want me to pray? I mean, I, I, I don't know how 
to pray in pluralistic terms. How do you want me to pray? I can't take off at the door of the Senate who I am in Christ and then put it back on when I leave. That's Paul's point here. That's the sincerity of heart before the Lord. It's integrity. Those in Christ don't put on Christ to church and then go to work the next day and do lousy work. They don't go there and steal supplies. They don't go there and build a coalition against their boss. Integrity, sincerity of heart before the Lord means that you do what you're paid to do in a way that your earthly boss is impressed with your heavenly father. You want some examples from the Bible? Look at Daniel. Daniel was serving a godless employer, Nebuchadnezzar. Are you kidding me? And what did Daniel say to him? He said, oh, king, live forever. That's what he said to his face, right? And then what did he do behind his back? Rip him? No. No, he served him, and he served him well. He interpreted a, a, a vision that the king had been given, and he did it accurately. Daniel did not agree with Nebuchadnezzar, and yet he was respectful to him as his master. And he served him well. Served him well. You know, throughout scripture, we read of numerous examples of individuals who, because of their relationship, vertical relationship with the Lord, they, they respected horizontally those that they dealt with, especially their masters. Uh, you take Joseph and how he, he served the Pharaoh. Or, or go back into the Daniel's day, um, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. That, those, that was, were their Hebrew names. Uh, Daniel, his uh, Babylonian name was Belshazzar. You know, they, 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 served, they served the kings of Babylon well. Now, they never violated who they were. That's why they ended up in the furnace. That's why they ended up in the lion's den. They never violated who they were in Christ, but they served well. Uh, you fast forward into the Persian Empire. You see Nehemiah and Esther and Mordecai and so forth serving the Persian kings well. Um, back in the 1800s, in uh, Scrooge's day, uh, Bob Cratchit is portrayed by Charles Dickens as the ideal employee. Ideal employee who not only serves Scrooge for meager pay, but he raises a toast to him around the dinner table with his children and his wife. His wife protested it, but he still did it. Now, why would Bob Cratchit, who's being abused by Scrooge, raise a toast to him? Why is that? It's because Charles Dickens was portraying Bob Cratchit as a Christian who was not only polite to his boss in person, he was respectful to him at home, around the dinner table with the others. It's just who Bob was. There was a sincerity of heart there, not duplicity. You ever heard the expression, truth is more caught than taught? It means that you can't teach children to work with integrity at school, to have a, a sincerity of heart before the Lord, if around the dinner table they see you blasting the one who's providing the meal that you have put before them. 
He's the one that's giving you the paycheck. Whatever you do, whatever you do, verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Heartily means the best you can do. You put your whole self into it because the work is not just for your employer. You're doing this because of who you are in Christ. You're doing this to honor the Lord. Joseph did this at 17 as a teenager. He made his father successful as a shepherd. And what does the brothers do? Did he get treated well for it? No. They sell him into slavery. He's taken down to Egypt. He's, he's uh, in servitude to Potiphar. <laughs> does he serve him well? Yes, he does. He makes him successful as a steward. And then what happens to him? Well, he gets thrown into jail. He wasn't rewarded for his faithfulness. No, Potiphar's wife lies about him. He gets sent to prison. And was he a good prisoner? Yes, he was the best. He made the jailer a success by being a model prisoner. I mean, how many jailers give the keys of the jail to, the, to a prisoner outside of Mayberry? How many do that? At 30 years old, he makes Pharaoh successful. Makes him successful during the time of famine. See, Joseph doesn't suddenly become a great employee. This is who he's been all along. It didn't matter whether he was a shepherd to his dad or a slave to Potiphar or a prisoner uh, to the jailer or a government official. didn't make any difference. What he did, he did for the Lord. You know, we get the word ethic from the word ethos. Ethos uh, has to do with character. The, the word actually uh, comes from uh, a habitat for horses. And uh, also for like in a cave. You say, well, what, what's that? What, what uh, similarity do you have between habitat for horses and a cave? It had to do with security. Ethos has to do with security. And it, uh, it means that you don't leave your children, by the way. You don't leave your children with anyone who is unethical. Why? That's dangerous. Ethics provides security. You do something that's unethical, and now you have compromised your security. Well, Joseph was a great man because he had an ethos. He had an attitude. He had an absolute that was secure. His ethic was who he was before the Lord, and it didn't matter. Didn't matter if it was his daddy, Potiphar, a jailer, or Pharaoh. What mattered was who he was before the Lord. That's where his security came from. Can any of you imagine? And I, I don't know, I couldn't do this. Maybe you can. But just try to imagine for a moment in Nazareth, someone coming back to Joseph's carpenter shop. And saying, Jesus, I'm filing a lien against you because you've done some shoddy work here. You might be the son of God, but I tell you what, you built a lousy table. Look at these legs are uneven. Look how the wood doesn't match. Look how this thing has been finished. I want my money back. Can you imagine that happening to Jesus? 
If you can't, I can't. If you can't imagine that, imagine somebody who's born again in Jesus doing that kind of work. Can you imagine Paul, somebody coming back to him and saying, hey, this tent that you made, man, the thing leaks like a sieve every time it rains. It's awful. I want my money back. Do you think that's the kind of tent maker Paul was? Can you imagine Paul being sued for taking shortcuts? I mean, that's Paul's point here. Those who are in Christ have an ethic about them. They are without duplicity. They have this healthy, God-fearing respect for the one whom they serve. Not the earthly master, but the one who is above him. So in verse 24, he says, We work with integrity heartily, knowing it is from the Lord we will receive an inheritance as our reward. If your boss doesn't properly compensate you, listen, the Lord will take care of you. He will take care of you. In the Middle Ages, there was a church being built, and there was this big pillar right very close to a wall. You could barely even fit anybody in between the, the, the pillar and the wall. And yet there was a, there was a guy there who was engraving on this, this, this pillar. He was very meticulously sculpting something. And someone asked him, why are you spending so much time on something that probably nobody will ever see? You know what he said? He said, the Lord sees it. The Lord sees it. This is the job they've gave me to, they gave me to do. I'm not going to do a shoddy job of it just because I think nobody's ever going to see it. I've been told to do this. And I'm going to do it well because the Lord sees it. The Lord sees it. When Frederick Betholdi began his work on the Statue of Liberty, there was a lot of time and attention given to every detail because the idea of liberty in the United States at the end of the Civil War was very, very precious. Very precious. And though you could not see the top of the statue when it was finished, 1886, you couldn't see the top of it. Now, today you can. Today you can fly over the top. And you know what you see? You see the integrity of Bethaldi's work. The hair on the Statue of Liberty. The crown. The torch. The detail. It's all there. He put work into every detail of that statue, thinking that men would never see it. But the Lord would. The ethics of our work is connected to the Lord we serve. The integrity with, with which I work, with how I treat others. Whether you're an employer or you're an employee, you do what you do to the glory of God. And you know what that means? When I'm usually the last one out of here during the week. And so I go through here and make sure the bathroom lights are turned off. Make sure the kitchen lights turned off. Make sure the foyer lights turned off. Make sure everything is secure. Why? Nobody sees it. 
Nobody knows about it until I just now told you. <laughs> and I'm not telling you to, to, to put any feathers in my cap. I, I just do it. Because th this, is, this is a place that's dedicated to the Lord. You know, I had an employee one time at another church, a pastor on staff. And when we would go around the, the, the room and staff meeting and everybody was kind of choosing at the beginning of the year when they wanted to take their vacation, almost, you know, all the, all the guys usually wanted to take off in the summertime and, and so forth. So we, we had to, to jockey, you know, how many of them could, could take off in the same month and so forth. And this guy never did want to take off in the summertime. He always wanted to take the week of Easter as a vacation. He always wanted to take a week in the fall when, when school started and everybody was, was uh, um, you know, gearing up at, at church with new programs and so forth. And I asked him one time, I said, why, why is it you're always choosing these weeks for vacation? And he said, why would I want to take a vacation when things are slowing down in the summertime? I want to take my vacation when it's the busiest. I said, really? Needless to stay, he didn't. He wasn't on staff very long, and he, he took a pastor at a Baptist church, and uh, he was there, I think, about two years before he's out of the ministry altogether. Out of ministry altogether. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And listen, there's no partiality. No partiality. So... Employers, masters, you better treat your doulois. You better treat them justly. You better treat them fairly. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And if you're not treated fairly by your boss, I want you to keep this in mind. This is what our focus is to be. That we are ultimately working for the Lord who is holy. Therefore, ergo, one day, he will make everything right. And listen, the wheels of God's justice may grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. So if you are among those who employ people, don't forget you have a master in heaven as well. Richard Halverson, a pastor, had a man in his church profess Christ as a savior. And he happened to own a number of car dealerships. And as an expression of his gratitude to the Lord for the salvation he had now received in Christ, he told his pastor, I plan to hand out a New Testament to every new customer, and I also plan to give it to every employee within my company. And Halverson said, well, you know, that's not a bad idea, but, but you, know, you know what would be even better? You know what would be even better than handing out a Bible? would be if you treated your customers fairly and your employees generously. You know, I suspect, Halverson said, that if you give them a New Testament and continue to do business the way that you have been, given the reputation you've got, giving them a New Testament may be detrimental to the gospel. You'd be better off to treat your customers fairly and your employees generously. That's Paul's point. That's his point. You ever heard of Mary Crowley? Probably not. I mean, she was a teenager when she got married and had a couple of kids and then was divorced by the time she was 21 years old. 
had no real formal education, but she becomes a Christian. She becomes a Christian. And in the 1930s, they were in the grip of the Great Depression. It was hard to find work. And so she stopped at this department store and she informed the manager, if you will hire me, I'll be the best employee you've ever had. And she convinced him, give her a chance. He agreed to a one-day trial. It meant she was awesome. So he gave her the job. And she did the job so well that um, they, they gave her a different job. And she applied that same ethic to this sales position that specialized in accessories for the home out of the department store. And she ends up with about 500 people under her, working under her. And she quit the job. You know why? Because, again, as a Christian, you know, she was a teetotaler, and she was put off by all the, the drinking at the office parties, and so she quit. And the other thing that, that motivated her to quit is that she wanted to be home with her children. So she put that, that same work ethic that she had found in Christ, that same work ethic, working for the Lord instead of for man. And she started her own business. By now it's 1957. And uh, she gave women who needed to stay home with their children because now her kids were, were grown and, and um, she was starting to have grandchildren. And so she wanted to give women in, in, in that day an opportunity to work part-time at home and make a little extra money and not take away from their, their kids. But she wanted to make sure that whatever business she started, that it honored the Lord. And so she structured her company in a way that everybody below her, everybody that worked for her, they were all paid before she took any profits at all. They were all taken care of first. And she set some really high standards for how customers were to be treated. And she ends up making a lot of money, a lot of money. And, and the first thing she did was, of course, she shared it with her employees. But they had a company statement this, this was their statement of purpose, dedicated to the best in life under the direction of God Almighty. Dedicated to the best in life under the direction of God Almighty. And you know, she was not only a success, but she inspired her sister-in-law to do the same thing. Now, her sister-in-law didn't sell uh, home supplies, she sold cosmetics. The lady married to her brother was Mary Kay. Paul's point is this, live in a way that, that all the negative preconceived notions about you as a Christian, they just fall apart. They fall apart. As your boss witnesses the integrity of your life, sees the quality of your work, the honesty of your dealings with others. And when the ethics of a country dries up, like we're seeing, when the ethics of a country dries up because of a rejection of the true God, the culture begins to fall apart. It will fall apart at home with the family. It will fall apart within the, 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 the society at large as far as morality goes. It'll fall apart as far as education goes. It'll fall apart as far as even things like gender identification. It'll fall apart in entertainment. It falls apart everywhere. And it falls apart in work with the ethics of the employees and the employers.
Civilizations that have collapsed throughout history began their demise with the renunciation of the true God. And you know what that led to? A loss of ethics results in a breakdown of society. And when that happens, the whole culture implodes. So the only hope any culture has is the proclamation of the gospel. And as lives are changed in Christ, the culture becomes a place where law and order are respected, where justice is restored, where, employee, where employers treat their employees well and their employees honor the Lord with their work and make their employees, employers successful. So customers can now trust what they are buying. Whether it's a product or service, they can trust. They can trust you. They can trust you because of who you are in Christ. And the, the thing that I think that many people today get confused about is the, the, the turnabout in our culture that is needed is not going to come through politics. It's going to come through the gospel. That's where the restoration of the culture begins is within Christians. And where you've got dishonest, greedy employers, and then you've got employees who refuse to do the work that they're being paid to do or to do good work. In the midst of that culture, what you will find, you will find Christians like you. You will find Christians like you within that culture who are serving the Lord in a way that it doesn't matter if you've got a good boss or bad boss. You do your best every day under the Lord who is your master. Now, speaking of Christians impacting, impacting their, their culture, did you know that Kentucky is the only state in all of America the only state in all of America with a constitutional amendment on the ballot this year that values human life. It's called Amendment 2. If passed, and, and I, I just, I find this um, fascinating when I see some of the commercials that are trying to distort this, but when it's passed, if it's passed, if enough people vote yes, it does three things. First of all, it protects the current pro-life laws, the current laws that we have. Number two, it prevents tax dollars from being used to take the lives of children within the womb. Because when, when we have abortions within the state, you pay for it. You pay for it every time you pay your taxes. And third, uh, it limits activist judges from imposing their values on you and your state, your culture. And so this is not a political issue. The politicians have tried to make it a political issue, but it's a moral issue. It's a moral issue. And so I mention that just because I don't want you to be misled by the millions of dollars that are being pumped into our state from outside organizations buying ads to convince you otherwise. I'm telling you, those who push that yes button for Amendment 2 are the ones who recognize that life in the womb is not just tissue to be discarded. Those are people who are making a statement that in our culture, life is a precious gift from our Lord. And it's not to be snuffed out for convenience sake. It just isn't. And as the body of Christ, we are to be light in the midst of darkness. So there's one practical way that we can at least make a difference.
in some degree. Well, if you have any questions, you know you can always go to the Connect table, or if you have prayer needs, you can go to the prayer room, um, and you're always welcome to come to my study throughout the week if you have other uh, matters you want to discuss. Now, just one quick footnote before we pray. The fall festival, the, rest, the Reformation celebration is going to occur tonight, 5 to 8 o'clock. Uh, we've, we've really gone back and forth on this uh, quite a bit, but uh, it appears that even though there may be some scattered sprinkling and so forth, uh, it's really not enough to, um, to, to, to cancel this event. So we're going to have the inflatables for the children. We're still going to have tons of chili. Uh, it's going to be a good time out there, a, a bonfire uh, where you can do your s'mores and and so forth, and the occasional sprinkles where there, there is a, a shelter. Uh, others might want to do, uh, I don't know, uh, those little pop-up camper things if they want to, but, but there should be nothing really that we can see that's coming that should dampen a great time for all tonight. So I encourage you to come and uh, invite your family, your friends, your neighbors, whoever, and uh, let's just have a good time celebrating the Reformation as the body of Christ. Stand with me as we pray together. Lord, we thank you not only for your mercy and grace that opens our eyes and changes our hearts, but Lord, we thank you for how you cleanse us through the washing of your word. And Lord, we would ask this morning that we may not only be hearers of the word, but doers of your word. As your word is sufficient for all aspects of our life. How we do life at home, how we do life here, and how we do life out there. May we leave this place to live to the glory of your name and do it in such a way that employers and employees look to you as their master and honor you. And you can see how they honor you and how they treat one another, how they treat customers, and how they do their work. And Father, just now we pray that you would bring us back together this evening as the body of Christ to celebrate that moment in history when there were courageous individuals who stood up and said, we're not going down the path of tradition of men, but down the path of scripture as Theonoustos to honor our Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.